uh, I wrote a seminar before we had these seven extra children um, who came to us about 14 years ago. And then after having these extra kids, I rewrote the seminar because <laughs> there was just so much to rethink and go through again. And so this is the product of that. Um, do you all have that uh, little booklet? Yeah. So we'll just go through that. We'll take a break at the end of each session. There's three sessions. I'm happy for there to be conversation and questions. The middle session is going to be a lot like what we talked about this morning, hopefully with uh, parenting examples. But let's just uh, jump in, and um, hopefully this will be helpful for you guys. So parents are the hope of civilization. I really believe that. And one of the, I actually don't like going to parenting seminars because I would usually just feel guilty afterwards. You know, I already knew I was a bad parent, and now it's been confirmed. Um, so just the very fact that you would be here says that you're already ma amazing parents and care about the next generation. And so I think you're a hero for being here. And I really hope that you feel loved and served and not made to feel bad. Um, what we're going to do then is just talk through the, the purpose of parenting and the, the, uh, the priority and the, and, the, and the process. So let's look at the purpose of parenting. The purpose of parenting is to raise relationally healthy children. Children who love God and others. I really believe that. I think if we're going to, I think we all want our children to be happy. And I think the only way to be happy is to have relational health. And so there's lots of parents who focus on getting their kids inside of every extracurricular activity and having them excel at school and, um, you know, be a well-rounded athlete and all those things are great. We've, we've done all those kinds of things with our kids. But the, the primary determining factor as to whether our kids are going to be whole and healthy is their relational health. And so we've worked very, very hard in our home to help them have a healthy relationship with God, with one another, with the world around them. And I really think that that's the point. Even if you want your kids to be um, successful, the best thing that you can do for them is to teach them how to work through conflict and have healthy relationships. We, um, we used to do this thing. So most of my kids are older now. Our youngest is 14. Our oldest is 33. <clears throat> but uh, when we, these foster kids first came to us, we would have family meetings. And they would ask for them. We'd go, Dad, we need a family meeting. Because it meant that one of them was really upset with another one. And so what we would do is we would kind of go around the circle and they would have to say two things that they appreciated about the person and then one thing that they were struggling with. And, um, and it was fun to watch because they're eight years old at this time or 12 years old at this time, you know, and to watch them begin to work through conflict with other people was really amazing to watch. And they still now, they talk about how they do that with their friends who are, you know, they're in their 20s. And I sit down with my friends, we're going to have a little, and I say what I appreciate about them, <laughs> something we can work on. So I think it really is all about relational health. And it's the sum of the law is to love God and to love others. So here's an interesting quote. It's by a guy named Gordon Newfield. He's Canadian, so he's got to be a good guy. And um, he uh, writes kind of for a secular audience. He does lots of work in the uh, foster parent world. And he says this, and I think it's a very radical thought. He says, parenthood is above all a relationship. 
not a skill to be acquired, not a behavior to be learned, but a connection to be sought. The hardest part for many parents is to shift the focus from behavior to relationship. And I think that's a really big deal. I, I want my kids to behave well. I don't want to be embarrassed when we go out. I want there to be peace in the home. And it's just very easy to make parenting all about behavior management and about helping them do what we want. And it is, for me at least, it was one of the hardest things to do is to say the priority is to be in right relationship with them. And if that relationship is healthy, then the behavior is going to follow. Uh, but you can have kids. I remember going to this one home once, and I walk in the door, and all four children are lined up right, right inside the door. And they all, hello, Mr. Mitchell, hello, Mr. Mitchell, you know. It's like, okay. And then, you know, you get to watch the family over a while. It wasn't a great family. Lots of dysfunction. But they behaved well. So I think that relationship doesn't always equal, you know, perfect behavior. The opposite then of what love is, love and relationship is, the Bible calls sin. And here's a definition of sin for you that I think is helpful. That sin is whatever breaks right relationship. So for the longest time, I just thought sin was a random list that God generated one day of what he liked and didn't like. I had no idea why some, he made one thing a sin and another thing loving. And it became obvious over the years. In Isaiah 59, uh, chapter 59, verses 1 and 2 talks about this, that God calls something a sin because if we do that, it's going to alienate us from either God or other people. And so it's very kind of God to give a list of sins because he's giving us a heads up that if we do that kind of behavior or attitude, it's, uh, it's going to be divisive. And so what we want to do is lead our children out of an orientation of sin, which is towards self-centeredness, self-absorption, toward a, toward a relational uh, life that's about giving and receiving love with God and others. So this is our, our summary of what it's about. Relational health, then, is the ability to receive and give love, to be grateful and generous. I love all of those words. Uh, people who receive love well are grateful. Gratitude is a really big deal. So what we find in lots of kids, and we find it in our own home, is lots of entitlement. And what we've noticed is that it's actually vulnerable to be grateful. So we have some of our kids are quite well protected. They're self-protected. They don't have uh, very much emotion. And to be grateful would be a sign of weakness, which I never would have thought of before. But if I'm grateful, that means I'm indebted to you. That means you could hurt me. And so they try to keep their guard up because they didn't come from a very great background. But uh, grateful people receive love well, and generous people give love well. One of the things that we did in our home is with allowance. And uh, so I think the typical way that you have an allowance where you give your kids money is you have jobs for them and if they do their jobs and they get their allowance so here's what we said to our kids it's still an experiment but it's now it's proven itself to work out because they're older now what we said is look the rest of your life you're only going to get money if you earn it so that's going to happen for 50 years or whatever but what we want to do is give you money when you don't deserve it 
So we're just going to give you money. We're going to give you whatever it was, $50 a month or $100 a month, depending on their age. And we just give them money for free. Because we wanted there to be a tangible way to show how God loves us, that he doesn't give us what we deserve. He gives us generously. And I was really worried that if we did that, that we would create entitled children who would go, great, free money. I love free money. And it's been fun to watch our kids be really good with savings, uh, always generous toward their friends, tithing. And so it's, it's, it worked out. Maybe it's just our kids, I don't know. But this idea that we wanted them, just further in the notes here, the result is secure and significant children. So we wanted them to be secure. We wanted them to know their love, not on the basis of their behavior, but just on our decision to love them. And so we did this with the allowance, and then we did with my girls, we did what was called daddy dates, where I just go out and spend time with them and try to spoil them as much as we could afford. But the whole goal was to create secure children. And what secure children have figured out how to do is receive love well. <clears throat> what significant children have figured out how to do is give love. So in psychology, it's taught that the two primary needs that we have uh, in life is security and significance. Everybody wants to be unconditionally loved and accepted, and everybody wants to have meaning and purpose. That's psychology 101. What's not quite as clear is how you become secure. You become secure by learning how to receive and be vulnerable. You become significant by learning self-sacrifice and giving. So the way that the world teaches security is if you collect things, you have a, do you call them RSPs? I don't, that's what we, um, retirement savings plans. And you try to make lots of money and have savings and you, you become secure by controlling variables. I think we become secure by needing God and others. And then the way that you become significant is not through collecting titles or admiration. You become significant by loving others. So the most significant thing that we can do, you know, for our kids is change their diapers. That's, nobody's going to sign up for that job. But it's very significant because it's loving others. Laying down our life for the, for the benefit of others. Also in terms of significance, is uh, uh, we wanted our kids to be able to not just receive love from us, but also give love right away, as soon as they could. And so what love from an, an infant looks like is letting their parents sleep through the night. I think that's the most loving thing that a child can do, <laughs> as far as I can tell. Because <laughs> uh, sleep is just such a rare thing when you have little children. And so... It wasn't just about us, you know, wanting to sleep at night, which of course was a huge issue. But in our mentality, even an infant can give love. Maybe not very voluntarily, because they don't have much choice in things. But our view was, we could be the kind of parents who would just, um, you know, like on demand whenever they wanted to eat or sleep, we would just kind of build all of our schedules around them. But we actually made a choice right at the very beginning that we weren't going to be a child-centered home. We were going to be a God-centered home. And this meant that our children would have to adapt to us, not just us adapting to them. And that was a very conscious decision that we made. And it already manifested itself in the first few weeks and months of life 
by saying, we could get up all the time, but we're going to try to teach them how to sleep through the night, which for us was a lot about scheduled feeding and getting them into a pattern. There's a, a book um, called The Baby Whisperer. I don't know if you've ever read that book. It's a great book that talks about a rhythm. I mean, it's, we don't have kids that are this young anymore. But it was, um, it was, uh, it was rest, activity, um, um, feeding, and then sleep kind of idea. There was a, there's a, you have to read the book, I forget it now. But if, as we get our kids into a routine, that usually helps them embrace a sleeping schedule much earlier than if you just kind of have more of an on-demand um, style of parenting, giving them what they, it looks like they need in any given moment that we already set in, not religiously, but we work toward having a schedule. Of course, our daughter Jessica broke all the molds and she didn't sleep through the night until I think she was six months old. And she would just scream like you have no idea if we uh, weren't there for her. So nothing's perfect. But I think a good portion of our children slept through by about six weeks or so. But that was all about creating significant children. Uh, The other thing that we did um, that... I still really like, is after dinner, every night, is we had, it's a really dumb name, but we called it our 15 minutes. And so I would say with a smile on my face, I go, for the next 15 minutes, I own you. And I get to order you around and have you do stuff uh, for 15 minutes. Then you can go off and play, do whatever you want, but for the next 15 minutes. So when you have that many kids, you can get a lot done (laughs) in 15 minutes. So they would uh, clean off the table, wash the dishes. Somebody else would clean the floor, if a, if a room needed to be uh, tidied up, they'd clean up the room or clean one of the bathrooms. And they would have to keep coming back to me. If they finished a job, they'd keep coming back to me for another job until the 15 minutes was up. And then they just get the rest of the night for free. And so we did that for years. And um, we're teaching our kids to, uh, to own family responsibilities. Because the truth is, it's just easier if I do stuff. Or if Debbie is my wife's name, if, if she does. It's just easier, you know. We're better at it. It's way faster. But we wanted our kids to have a sense of significance and belonging in our home. And so we gave them responsibilities, um, always in measure with their age. But it was whether they were an infant or um, a child. We're trying to help them love us as well as us love them. Now, here is the big challenge in parenting. Notice how security and significance are in tension with one another. Security says, I love you just the way you are. Significance says, you need responsibility and do stuff. So here's a question that I ask in my head, I think over my parenting career a thousand times, and I ask this question, is this a security moment or a significance moment? If it's a security moment, then... I'm just going to overlook your sin. I'm not going to ask a lot of you. I'm just going to love you, you know, unconditionally. Or is this a significant moment where, no, you have to be responsible for something. If I just let you get away with what you just did, uh, you hurt your brother, and I can't ignore that. So you have to be responsible and love others, not just yourself. And so the tension in parenting is the tension between security and significance. Um, passive parents 
uh, over-functioning parents are going to be more on the security, more parents with higher expectations and kind of higher achievement. In, in my city, it's often uh, Asian homes that'll be like this, but where there's a lot higher expectations, that's going to be more on the significant side. But what we're trying to do is hold in tension these two almost opposing ideas. And both are valuable. But uh, so, you know, I'll look at my kids and they're all watching TV or playing video games or whatever. I go, you know what? I think they need some significance. I think they need to think about someone other than themselves. But if you only do that, then we do what's described in Ephesians where we can exasperate our kids, where they become disheartened because there's so many demands. And then we just need to go play. And I just need to enjoy my kids and hang out with them. And so I think that that's the tension that we experience inside of parenting, is receiving and giving love, security and significance. Does that make sense? And I think we work that out all from, from that age right on up. So what is good parents then? Healthy parents use their authority to, by the way, is there any questions on that? Security and significance, giving and receiving? Are you okay with that? Makes sense? Yeah. Oh, did I? Oh, is that in your notes? Oh, that's great. Can you show me the notes? Is that in gray? Oh, I see. Yeah. So the marshmallow experiment, I'm sure you've all heard of it, is where they've given... Um, They've given the choice of, uh, of kids that are, I think they're around like seven, nine years old. They say what you can do is you can get, maybe younger even, but you can get uh, one marshmallow now, you can get a bag of marshmallows an hour from now. And then what they did is they actually, um, which is delayed gratification, right? And then what they did is they monitored those children, the ones who just says, I want the one marshmallow. I can't, <laughs> I can't wait. Uh, it's too, you know, too many variables, as if they would think that way. But um, they, they then traced their lives, and the kids who could wait for the bag of marshmallows had a very different future than the kids who grabbed the, the one marshmallow. It was, a, it was like a 20-year experiment. Very, very interesting. So that's what's going on there. So to become significant, often you don't get immediate reward. And uh, that's a hard thing for children to grab hold of. Any other comments? Thanks. All right. So what are uh, good parents? Good parents, uh, healthy parents, use their authority to promote right relationship. Uh, we don't use our authority to get our own way or to just have peace in the house. We use our authority to promote right relationship, which might mean it costs us something. Our power is rooted in right relationship, not in competence or control. I thought that my kids would respect me if I was competent or if I exerted power by being, you know, Demanding, and I'm bigger than you are, so you have to do what I want. I'll tell you when this really hit me. Um, the uh, five of our kids have uh, one mother. She passed away from uh, liver failure um, 
two falls ago, really hard on the kids. And I remember, so, so she was not a nice person. Like she was, I could tell you stories of what she did. She was just a very mean, dysfunctional alcoholic who treated her children uh, just horribly from neglect to abuse. It was, uh, and so here they have this horrible parent and every one of her children deeply loved her. And I was very struck by that because I thought that my kids would love me if I performed well. And I discovered in that moment that our kids love us. They just, they can't help but love us. And I don't have to try to suck up to them or manipulate love. They just love us. And when I saw how much they loved their dysfunctional mother, it really changed where I understood the power of parenting comes from. It comes from our relationship with them, not from how great we are or how poorly or well we do. That was very, very, so often, you know, our kids will say, oh, I mean, I guess some of my foster kids said this to me, but, you know, I hate you, and uh, they don't. But when I believe that they hate me, then I feel like I have to, then I'm not really loving them, I'm just trying to suck up to them and get them to like me again. That whole thing is messed up. But I know that the authority that I have in their life is simply my relationship with them. Not in my competence or in uh, or control. A border of loving authority enables peace and joy to flourish in our homes. Outside the circle are alienation, hurt, and danger. So if we look at that little diagram that you see in your notes, the responsibility of parents is not to control everything, but is to, is to provide safety for love to flourish. I noticed something with my kids that uh, I was very convicted by. Let's say uh, one of my kids would hit another one of the kids. And then I would ignore it or say, you know, you should forgive them for doing that and, or the other one, you should apologize or whatever. But I didn't really take it seriously. And I noticed that the one who got hit would figure out how to get revenge later. And I realized that if I don't provide a safe place where I deal with misbehavior, and uh, they'll actually start taking matters into their own hands, and that just never goes well. And if I, because sometimes I'm just tired, I've had a long day, I don't really want to care. And if I'm not actively promoting safety and peace in the home, then they start taking charge. And then that's when things really go sideways. So my responsibility is to create a safe place for love to occur. Outside of the circle of alienation, hurt, and danger, inside the circle is safety and peace and joy. And so this is why we would have our family meetings, how I would have to discipline my children when they were mean to one another, how um, we would work through how to share, all those kinds of things were creating safety so that love could thrive.
There's, a, there's an experiment that was done a long time ago, uh, but I still really like it. They, they observed kids in a, uh, a school playground, and there was a chain link fence all around, chain link fence, all around, the, uh, all around the, the playground, and they observed that the kids would play right up against the fence. And so this is in the, uh, in the 60s when it's all about free love and free everything else and uh, anti-authority, which of course is even more significant today. But they said this is clearly constricting the kids. So what we need to do in the name of freedom is we need to get rid of the chain link fence. And what they discovered is that when they removed the fence, all the kids huddled in the middle of the yard and just played in the middle of the yard. That actually creating boundaries creates more freedom than less freedom. And this was a, a revolutionary thought, that our kids actually need to hear that this is, you can do this and you can't do this. That actually creates more freedom than if we just let them do whatever they want and call it forgiveness or something. Uh, what some parents call freedom or self-expression is simply not having the courage to confront self-centeredness in them or their children. I remember there was a, my oldest son, when he used to play soccer, there was this other enlightened father and he had a, a child, my son's age, because he had a child. So they're playing soccer. They're, I don't know, seven years old or something. And then he had a toddler. And I still remember the father just being very proud of himself. You, could, you know how people have that look on their face, like, look at me, what a good dad I am. And there's this little kid who could barely walk, you know, just barely so, you know, one something. And uh, this little kid would walk right out into the middle of the field while they're playing soccer. And his, he thought his responsibility, he would walk behind the child like this, make sure they didn't fall. If the ball was coming towards them, he'd make sure the ball, and it's like they're playing a soccer game. But he thought his job was to create freedom of expression, thinking that, that limits constrict people. And, uh, and the opposite is true. If we can teach our children restraint, they'll have way more freedoms in life than if we just give them self-expression. So, at least in my city, there's, there's, there's a parenting model that's all about freedom of expression. And there is no constraints. And it actually creates insecure, there's no chain link fence. It creates insecure children who don't know how to restrain their impulses. By the way, this is such a big deal now where um, when we look at... Um, uh, sexual expression, what is commonly understood now, it's almost just believed to be a fact, that if I have a sexual desire, it must be expressed. And if it's not expressed, that's going to lead to some kind of frustration and dysfunction. And so there's, if I feel it, I should be able to express it. Very, very common understanding that uh, if you've ever had kids, you don't want to believe that. This is what Gary Ezra says. I don't really recommend all of his, what he says, but I like this quote. Children will rise to the level of expectation of their parents. Many parents expect little and receive exactly that. We think that the idea of expectation is, a, is an inherently negative idea. Unrealistic expectations are, but expectations are important. We undermine raising loving children 
if we expect anything less than them obeying us without challenge, excuse, or delay. Something that uh, we're calling first-time obedience. So this is, a, this is maybe a radical thought for you, but what we tried, very imperfectly, but we tried to have in our home was something called first-time obedience. Meaning that if I ask you to do something, you'll do it first time. So it's not strike one, strike two, strike three. I warned you, it's not that language. It's first-time obedience. I'll tell you why we, would, why we value that. It's because we would like our children to obey Jesus like that. We would like them to hear what Jesus says and do what he says. So we thought they should practice on us. My, uh, my mentor, who's a psychologist, says that for the first, I forget what he says, I think it's five years, but I can't remember exactly. He says, for the first five years of a child's life, you are God. And so, uh, well, we're going to get to that in the, next, uh, in the next session. But they're figuring out how to relate to God by how they relate to us. And so we do first-time obedience. Now, what this means, then, is that you set them up for obedience. So you don't surprise them with an idea. So what we do in our home is we say, um, Jonah, in, uh, in 15 minutes, uh, you'll need to go upstairs for bed. So you're playing a video game, great. Uh, in 15 minutes, you'll need to be done, and I'll be asking you to go upstairs. So you warn them ahead of time. And, uh, oh, the first thing that you do is you make sure they're looking at you. Because <laughs> it's like... Uh, I didn't hear that. And so you eye contact, pre-warning, so that we're setting them up to obey first time in 15 minutes from now. So it's not like you surprise obedience. You set them up to succeed, but you are teaching them how to do something right away. I remember uh, my uh, mother, God bless her, she's a great parent, but I remember she had a tone in her voice. So we lived out in the country. We grew a lot of our own vegetables. And one of them was potatoes. And so she'd go, Greg, uh, could you please get the potatoes? And I'd go, yeah, sure, just next commercial or whatever, you know. And I knew in the tone of her voice. She didn't mean it. I knew that. And so then she would go, Greg, I really need the potatoes. Oh, yeah, I'm sorry. I forgot. Yeah, just one more minute. And then she would, you know, usually say my full name and say, you get the potatoes now. So what did she teach me? She taught me that I disobey twice for every act of obedience. That's what she taught me. It was a two-to-one ratio. I could disobey twice for every act of obedience. So we'd much rather have our children obey Jesus first time and not have a practice of disobedience. Strike one, strike two, strike three teaches children how to disobey, not how to obey. But maybe we might want to talk about that if that's uh, controversial. The goal of parenting is for children to govern themselves to stay in the circle of right relationship, even when you're not there. So the goal is for our children to be self-governing, to be able to make choices even at personal cost and even when we're not there. So in parenting books, they talk about the V of freedom. When a child is small, there's not very much freedom. But as they grow in responsibility, they can then grow in freedom. And freedom and responsibility always go together. You can't have one without the other. I grew up, my, uh, we had lots of foster kids. Uh, one 
of my sister's. Her name was Lisa. She lived with us for eight years. And I remember the difference between how my parents treated Lisa and how they treated me. I was a good kid. I think I touched a cigarette once. I mean, I was just a good kid, you know? And um, uh, Lisa wasn't. When she was uh, in grade seven, she went to do a research project on her family of origin. And the latest boyfriend that her mother had physically threw her out of the house. And it just spun her off. It's just so tragic. I noticed how much control my parents needed to have over Lisa and how much freedom I had. I just could notice that. And so we give our children more freedom by helping them be responsible. It's a kind and loving thing to do. Thinking relationally. Okay, this is where you're going to have to just, just for a minute put on your thinking caps. This is the most intellectually complicated part of our time together, but I think it's really worth understanding. To be made in the image of God is to be made for relationship with God and others. God is a relational God. Uh, so he describes himself as father and son. Uh, the Trinity is the only healthy God in the universe. Um, uh, monotheistic religions can't teach us about relationship because uh, there's only one of them. They can't teach us about love. Polytheistic relationships, the gods are always fighting with one another. Only in, only in God do we have one God and three persons living in perfect harmony. God is love and is relationship by the very nature of who he is. And so we're made for relationship. I find it interesting that God describes himself as the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He describes him relationally. I just think that's fascinating. Therefore, we must think of ourselves and our children as part of a family system instead of isolated individuals for their problems are relational. Okay, so this is, uh, this is the work of a guy named Murray Bowen. And can you just put up your hand? Have you heard of something called family systems theory? Anybody? Okay. So uh, very, very helpful. It was started by this guy named Murray Bowen. He worked with uh, schizophrenic children. And here's how family therapy happened. I think it was the, uh, the 60s, if I remember correctly, when he was doing this research. Is that uh, if you had a family would go to family therapy, and what they would do is they would find out who the problem child is. The, the therapist would say, so what seems to be the problem? And they'd all point at someone. And basically, they would try to fix that person and then reinsert them into the family in the hope that everything would be fine. What Murray Bowen figured out was that uh, the black sheep of the family, or what they would call the IP, the identified problem, that the IP was actually a symptom of poor family dynamics. And that as, they, as, they, as he fostered healthy relationship inside of a family, the black sheep didn't need to act out nearly as much as they once did. And they even found, which I think is still remarkable, that schizophrenia, the symptoms of schizophrenia actually went down as the health of the family went up. Schizophrenia. And so this was groundbreaking research that said that we're a product of our relationships. And we can't imagine fixing a child or fixing somebody as an isolated individual. All we can do is fix their, their relationships and then their behavior will follow. So, uh, so here's a quote by Roberta Gilbert. 
She's a family systems specialist. Here's what she says. You can see it in your notes. Because any family member is only a part of a larger entity, children with problems are rarely the underlying problem. Rather, they are symptoms of something much bigger, a family emotional or relationship problem. If the adults in a family have a problem they do not deal with and resolve, anxiety gets displaced to a child. As a child becomes an anxiety sink for the family, he or she will definitely develop some kind of problem. As the focus on the child increases, there is a loss of focus on self by each parent. As the problem increases in severity, the family emotional focus becomes more anxious, intensifying the problem in an ever-increasing spiral. So as, as parents don't work on their issue, they displace it to the child, meaning they focus on the child instead of looking at their own issues, they try to fix the child, or they try to create an allegiance with the child where they say, wow, you know, uh, dad's having a really hard day, but I'm glad that you're good. Like, that's really manipulative. Um, as as the, the child, then, the, the misbehavior of the child is actually a sign of poor relational dynamics. And so if you see that little diagram, this is the tricky part. If you see that little diagram of a, of a hanging mobile, that what... Uh, relationships are always trying to do is they're trying to be in uh, equilibrium and stay balanced. Um, what happens as, a, as a, a parent in anxiety tries to, uh, to, come, to come closer to force something to happen, um, it actually creates an equal and, equal and opposite reaction and sends the other person farther away. And so um, what we want is we want giving and receiving to be in balance with one another and not chasing after our kids or being distant and having them have to chase after us. But we're trying to keep our family mobile in a sense in balance where giving and receiving love are happening instead of uh, somebody being too distant or too emotionally uh, enmeshed, that's when dysfunction starts to happen. <clears throat> so if we, if we chase after our children, they actually go in the opposite direction. If we're under-functioning, then they try to compensate and over-function. So one of my... Uh, Foster kids, his name is Noah, just a great kid. He's getting married this summer, which is really exciting, to a great girl. Um, he's uh, 23, maybe turning 24, I believe, this summer. I think that's right. It keeps changing every year. And there's so many kids, I'm horrible. Um, so he was the father figure in the home. He came, uh, he was 10 years old when he came into our home. And he, he would act like the father. Because the mother was distant and unengaged, he then had to somehow, to bring balance to the system, had to, uh, to over-function. And so he became the father in the home. And as a result, he never really had a proper childhood. And he really struggles in knowing how to receive love. He knows how to give love very well, but he doesn't know how to receive love. And so when I parent him, it's mostly teaching him how to receive um, just the other day, he, uh, we wanted to give him something. He says, no, 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 I'll be fine. 
I, and I said, Noah, uh, you get to practice being loved right now. Would you like to do that? I say it with a smile on my face. He goes, yeah, you're right. I really would like it. Thank you. He's still learning how to be a child and receive. So misbehavior then is a symptom of family anxiety rather than a problem child. This is Gordon Neufeld again. If a child is bad, it's the relationship we need to correct, not the child. Yeah. I'm sorry? No. Is it this? I would like to see the movie. Really? Oh, okay. Okay. Uh, let me give you an example of this. So Jessica, she's just, uh, today, she's on a flight to London. She's going to go to an alpha. She's a campus, uh, high school campus missionary in our church. And she's going to an alpha conference in uh, London with her best friend. They're really excited. Um, I remember when she went from uh, elementary school to high school. And she went to the local high school, John Oliver High School. And she came home for the first, uh, for the first couple weeks. She would come home sullen, angry. She'd walk in the door and, uh, and Debbie would say, how was your day? And she'd go, fine. Anything interesting happened today? No, why do you always bug me? Why don't you just leave me alone? That's how she would talk. Now, what do I want to do in that moment? How dare you talk to your mother that way? I want you to apologize right now. What do you think Jess would do? Sorry, I just wouldn't care. So she did this for, an, it was a couple weeks. I'm pretty sure it was first two weeks of school. And, um, and so finally, it was, it was going on for too long. So I take her by the hand. We come and sit in the living room. And I say, Jess, what's going on? This is, uh, this is not you. And she just has, if you know my daughter, she does a stone cold face really well, you know, just tight lips and, you know. And, uh, and then I see a tear come out of her eye. And she says, Dad, they're bullying me at school. And uh, when I play volleyball and I miss the ball, they do the slow clap. And they mock me. And she led one of her friends to Christ the, the year before. And she says, uh, and my friend, um, she doesn't want to be a Christian anymore. And she said that she wants to go to hell. And then she burst into tears. And I says, oh, Jess, I'm so sorry. And I held her and prayed for her and uh, just cared for my daughter. And I said, just because I thought it'd be fun, I go, do you want to know how to deal with bullies? She goes, sure, you can tell me if you want. I says, what you do is they, if they say you're an idiot, you say, I am not. I'm a stupid idiot. <laughs> they have no idea what to do with that. <laughs> And so she, she's, very, uh, she's very relationally intuitive, so she got the principle. So the next, the next day, I, I say, how'd it go? She says, well, I missed the ball again in, in volleyball. And so I, when I missed the ball, I said, thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you. I'll take autographs later. Like, so brave, hey? She just wasn't intimidated by bullies. I was so proud of her. Anyways, so, uh, so I just care for my daughter. And I say, you know, Jess, you know, you can't touch your mom that way. She goes, yeah, I know, I can't do that. So I'd like you to figure out how to say sorry to your mom. Don't tell me what you're going to do. 
because I know she really likes planning things. So I said, just think of something that you would like to do that you think would be really meaningful for mom. So she goes away and she comes back five minutes later and she says, Dad, I know exactly what I'm going to do. Uh, the year before, uh, the summer before, that summer, we took Jessica away, Debbie and I took her away to Hawaii. I, w I used to teach every summer in Hawaii. It was a tough gig. And uh, this time I took Debbie and just Jessica, so not all the other kids, just her. So we've never just gone away with her. And we spoiled her. She swam with dolphins and, you know, played in the ocean. And while I was teaching, they were doing fun stuff. She just had an amazing time. So she said, Dad, I'm going to make a Hawaiian breakfast for Mom. And, um, and so she put on a Little Mermaid music. That was what she thought Hawaiian music was, you know. She put on a Little Mermaid music, and, uh, and she had uh, Hawaiian drinks with the little umbrellas, you know. And then she had Jonah, who I think was like four years old at the time. He had two coconut shells, and he was the bartender, you know. And uh, she made uh, pancakes with so Hawaiian pancakes. I don't even know what that is, but she made Hawaiian pancakes. And then she had each one of the kids um, stand up and say what they appreciated about mom. And then she was the last one to stand up. And she just says, mom, I'm sorry for the way that I treated you and, and I really love you. Now, if I would have just corrected the behavior instead of the relationship, what kind of apology do you think mom would get? It takes patience to be able to parent the relationship and not just correct the behavior. The principle of reaping and sowing means that the seed in our hearts sprouts in our children. They're more than our physical offspring. Pride produces pride. Humility produces humility. If dysfunction is not named and addressed, it is transmitted down to the next generation. So what we try to do is we try to give them something better to react off of. We'll talk a lot more about this in the next session. So parents then are ministers of reconciliation. 2 Corinthians 5.18. We bring things into right relationship. While we change diapers, shuttle children, discipline behavior, value education, or promote health, our ultimate goal is to promote relational health in our homes. Therefore, our concern is for the health of the family's relationships as much as it is for the individual members, including their relationship with God. Happiness is a symptom of giving and receiving love, of families having a vision that is bigger than themselves. The result is multi-generational blessing, so that you, your children, and their children after them may fear the Lord your God as long as you live, and so that you may enjoy a long life. So if, you, if we pursue happiness head-on, our children won't be happy. But if we pursue, if we provide a safe place for them to freely give and freely receive love, then we have happy homes. And it's just so much fun now. You know, most of my kids are growing up. And uh, it's so much, Sunday evening is when they all come over, but they're just, all, they're just always over. And it's just so enjoyable now to you invest so much in your children over the years, and they just enjoy being with us. And we get to be friends together, and uh, it really makes it all worthwhile. So that's the purpose of parenting. Do you have any questions or comments before we take a break?
Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I am going to give a whole lesson on that. Yeah, that's a big deal. It's a big deal. Thank you. But I, I'll make sure that I do. Any other comments? It's really interesting. Um, uh, this was uh, two winters ago. Somebody gave us two tickets to a snowmobiling thing out at Whistler. So Debbie didn't want to go, so I, I went with my son Tyler. So we did it, had a snowmobiling adventure. It's kind of okay. I like mountain biking better. Um, but uh, it was a fun day. And so on the way back, I just like checking in with my kids. So I say, you know, so how are we doing? Like, how are we doing? And uh, so he's, uh, he's like 22 at this point. So he says, you know, Dad, he says, probably if you asked me that question, which I did, um, two or three years ago, I would have given you a list of things that I'm disappointed with you in. He says, you know what? He says, I'm okay with all that. You don't need to be perfect anymore for me. I really enjoy who you are, and I really love our relationship. And we're fine. That was very meaningful to me. Now, what I wanted him to say is, Dad, you've been amazing in every way. And I can't even think of something that you've done wrong. He didn't say that. He said, I see what you do wrong, and I'm okay. That was a big moment for me that my kids are not looking for my perfection. My kids are looking for humility and relationship. And if I can stay there, then it's gonna work out okay. But if I become defensive, blaming, um, rigid, all of those things, that's what's gonna hurt them, not if I'm imperfect. Yeah. 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 Yeah, so we tried to regularly have daddy dates or with my boys I'll go mountain biking. And what they didn't know is that I would pick trails to go mountain biking on where we could bike side by side. So we would talk and then have adrenaline going down. But I, I bought myself half an hour or an hour of up of just being able to talk to them. So that was intentional, just setting up moments and really going to Home Depot 
is I just always take along a kid, you know, and it just, we just get a chance to talk there and back and hang out together. So that's, uh, but those are kind of deliberate, but most of the time it's in response to what's going on. So you can see when one of your children is sullen or when two of them are arguing or whatever's going on. And then I find it really hard, but just really capitalizing on those moments and not letting them slide, but being there. Um, what really was very true in our home is I'm a pastor and I'm, you know, you're with people all day long. And then it seems as though teenagers wake up around 11 p.m. I don't know what it is, but it's about 11 at night. It's like, really? Like, I'm ready to go to bed. And they're like, and we would have our best talks after 11. And so I just needed to be around. And uh, I don't know how many times my kids have said, Dad, can we talk? You know? And it usually was around 11 o'clock when they would want to talk. And it was about something that's either going on for them personally or with one of their siblings. And then we just would work it through together. <clears throat> Helping them be secure and significant. So I'm, I'm understanding their point of view. I care about how they feel. And what would love look like? And we'll get into that in greater detail. It's not a clear answer to your question, but it is what we do. Let's take a break. What's really funny is I'm super into parenting and I'm horrible around other people's children. I'm just the most awkward person you could imagine. I'm very comfortable around mine, but I'm horrible around others. Let's look at the, uh, let's look at the second session here. <clears throat> now this is about the priority of parenting. The purpose of parenting is to help your children give and receive love, be grateful and generous. And, uh, and so we're trying to use our authority to promote relationship, not just to fix behavior. Here we're looking at the, at the priority of parenting. The challenges of parenting are endless. From building security and significance to struggling with the sin nature in them and us to our inexperience, where do we start? Again, I just have felt like a very inadequate parent most of the time. But the priority is our hearts. Above all else, guard your heart for everything you do flows from it. We can't, this is what's so great about parenting, is we can't fake parenting. We always parent out of who we are. This is the big issue with teenagers. The reason why there's often a gap between parents and teens is because when kids become teenagers, you're no longer God, and they can see your imperfections. And what creates the gap is not your imperfections, it's if you're unwilling to admit them, but you're still trying to keep the illusion of being amazing. But as soon as you just admit that you're a fallen person like anybody else, their anxiety goes down because they see that you know, and then you're actually able to maintain a relationship with your, with your teens. I have one main thing, a lot of you are young parents, but I have one criteria for a healthy relationship with teenagers, just one, keep them talking. If you can keep a teenager talking, you win. I, I think it's that true. You, if you can keep a teenager not just saying fine, whatever, but actually talking, you have a healthy relationship with them. And uh, when they need help, they'll come to you. 
I had to, I had to remember as it, when I had teenagers that my days of just telling them what to do and them obeying me was over. That ended. Now I can appeal to them. We can talk things through. But the day of just do it because I said so are long gone. So I had to really shift the focus onto relational equity and not because I said so. Um, Therefore, the best thing that we can do for our kids is have a healthy relationship with God and our spouse. Our kids need to watch Debbie and I building our relationship. And, uh, and, we, and the single parents in our home, in our church rather, well, they are in our home too. We have a single mom living with us. But um, uh, the kids need to watch, it's usually a single mom, need to watch the single mom having a life outside of the kids. Really, really important. It doesn't have to be a lot, but just going out on a night with the girls or doing something that they just enjoy doing, really important, so that they see that you're being healthy regardless of me. That there's, it's, it's not a child-centered home. I think it's a healthy thing to do. This is a very convicting sentence, so I'm sorry that it is, but children have a much better chance of growing up if their parents have done so first. <laughs> I think that's such, it's just so funny to me, I had to put it in. Um, so we're working on our own health, relational health with God and others. We're trying to be healthy ourselves, and then that's gonna be the best gift we give to our kids. If we focus on fixing a child's behavior, we forget they're imitators of us. I said earlier that um, this morning that my parents uh, did foster care for as long as I remember being a kid, and I didn't like it. I, didn't, I wanted them to myself. I was a selfish little kid, like most kids. And uh, here we are, all these years later, having all these extra foster kids. And I just came by it honestly, because my, I didn't even like it, but my parents did. And you just become what your parents value. You just, it just happens naturally. And so we, Debbie and I have been married 36 years. And um, uh, I think only three years of, uh, of being married have we lived on our own, like without somebody outside of our immediate family. It's just how we've chosen to live. Well, that's my parents' fault. They instilled that in me without ever saying anything. They just lived that way, and it inspired me. Let me just say something about techniques. Um, Most parents, including myself, we want techniques. What do you do when? Usually most parenting questions start with how. How do I, how do I, right? Um, I have a horrible memory. It's just horrible. I can't, I don't remember names well. I remember faces quite well, but not names. I don't remember what I said. I don't remember, like I just have a horrible memory. And this has been a huge gift to me because I think parenting is about being genuine in a moment, not just applying a technique. Techniques are often a form of anxiety of trying to fix something without being emotionally engaged. 
And so I've had to steer away from techniques and just figure out how to engage with my children instead of doing a little trick that I know that help, like, and I'm not saying that techniques are all bad. I just know in my own heart, sometimes I use techniques as a way to not engage. And hopefully in the last session, I'm gonna give you lots of techniques, so. But it's just something to think about. Now look at this, this was a study that was done in, uh, in 1979. What a, a woman, her name is Anna Marie Rizzuto, what she did is she did, she interviewed some psychiatric patients and asked them to describe their relationship with their parents. And then two weeks later, after they forget what they said, she then asked them to describe their relationship with God, who they think God is. And she compared the two lists. And look at this. My beliefs about my parents. I was never close to my father. Same person. I've never experienced closeness to God. Beliefs about parents. My father always insisted I make the most of my abilities. If there is a God, then I have to satisfy him because I've not made the best use of my abilities. Isn't that shocking? The language is the same. I don't ask anything from my father. If I'm in distress, I don't resort to God because I have no belief in God. If I could change myself, I would like to be like my mother because I thought she was very strong when I was little. For me, my love for God is important because I need him to give me strength. Isn't that beautiful? And so here's what you need to know. You need to know that who you are matters way more than how you parent. Just way more. And, uh, you know, my kids write me Father's Day, you know, cards and stuff. And they, they tell me about who I am. They tell me a little bit about what we've done together, but it's mostly about who I am. That's just very meaningful to me. It's clarifying as to what's really going on in parenting. I thought parenting was mostly about fixing my children and making them better human beings. And now I think parenting is mostly about following Jesus in front of my kids. Of course, we're going to love them and care for them, and I'm not saying we don't do all of that, but I think the real impact of parents on children is more about who we are than about what we've done to them. Most of what we did to them was kind of dumb. You know, they'll tell me, you know, Dad, when you did that, that didn't work. <laughs> it just made me resentful. When you did that, I just thought it was funny. It wasn't a punishment at all. Like they just, and when you, like they just criticize all of my clever techniques, you know. <laughs> but they says, but I've watched you when your church was falling apart and I watched you pray and turn to Jesus. I'll never forget that. And when I disappointed you, and you still gave me a hug, that changed me. Like that, that's what they talk about. I find that very reassuring because I just never feel good enough with the techniques and I just never feel very good. The secret of parenting is not what a parent does, but rather who a parent is to a child. Isn't that powerful? Who am I to you? One of the things I say to my kids is I say, I might not be the best parent, but I'm your parent. And just a heads up, you might not be the best kid, <laughs> but you're my kid. So let's work this through. It's just an honest thing to say. We're not amazing, but let's love one another. The heart. So what, mot what motivates a healthy heart? It is love. Love is other-centered. 
it is hard to go wrong with right motives. That's a thing worth writing down. It is hard to go wrong with right motives. You know, in discipline, when I've disciplined my children poorly, it's because my heart wasn't good. I was angry. I was frustrated. My heart was the problem, not my discipline method. What motivates an unhealthy heart is self-centeredness. All and it drives all sin, and the result is broken relationships. Examine any unhealthy parenting moment, and you'll find a selfish motive behind it. All of my poor parenting is about my heart, and I was just tired of being loving. I just got tired of it. It's enough already. It's been 20 years. I'm tired. What causes fights and quarrels among you? Do they not come from the desires that battle within you? So, you know, think about watching a, for us it'd be a hockey game, maybe for you it's basketball or football or something. And we just parent out of wanting to get back to the game. The odds of that going well are not high. What drives self-centeredness? It is typically anxiety. So what is anxiety? Now, we did this uh, before, and so I'm sorry for those of you who just showed, showed up this afternoon. I'll just go through this briefly, but I, it is worth reviewing at least. So what is anxiety? It's the first ang- emotion, by the way, that's recorded after the fall of humanity. It's the first negative emotion. And it is the condition of our children. It's the most common mental illness. 50% of college students felt overwhelmed, overwhelming anxiety in the last year. Um, 30 to 20% of uh, high schoolers have an anxiety disorder. <clears throat> um, Shirley said it really well. I, I think, or no, maybe one of you said it. I can't remember. But we think that some people have anxiety disorders. I thoroughly disagree. I think we all, was it you saying it? Maybe it was you, thank you. That we all have anxiety disorders. Everybody does. Um, I, that anxiety is my number, what's well, my sinful flesh. But uh, how I deal with my anxiety is not great. It's viral. It affects others. Anxiety is a thin stream of fear trickling through the mind. If encouraged, it cuts a channel in which all other thoughts are drained. And so we need to be honest that, and this, Lily was going to ask about this, I think, but um, everything that's being fed our children out of society is thoroughly anxiety-producing. How they look, how smart or not they are, how athletic they are, it's all about comparison, and it's all birthed out of an insecure identity. And it produces so much anxiety. It's a very big deal for our kids, much more than it was, especially me, I'm old, when, I, when we grew up. And it is the issue that God addresses in leaders. I did, I did, it wasn't hard, but I did a bit of research, and I looked at every time God spoke to leaders in the Bible. And I think it's without exception, there was some form of do not be afraid. Every time God addresses a leader. Because... Anxiety is the primary leadership problem. And when we 
lead, whether as parents or pastors or professionals, when we lead out of anxiety, it typically doesn't go very well. I, uh, for my doctoral studies, I had to read dozens and dozens of leadership books. And every leadership book had a very similar theme to it. There was some successful leader, and then he gave 10 tips and tricks for how he became successful. I just grew to be angry with those books. I hated them. Because first of all, you got successful because God blessed you. That's number one. You weren't that clever. I hate to break it to you. But God blessed you. And number two, it wasn't your, it wasn't your tips and tricks. There's a whole other thing going on. And it was about your heart or about the other people who were in your life who overlooked all of your ignorance and pride. There was other things going on that you're not writing about. And I grew to just be upset with leadership books because I thought they were always missing the point and they were primarily missing the heart. And so this is why God says, do not be afraid. Um, so what are common fears? My kids won't be happy, successful, or Christian. My kids won't like me. I'm not a good parent. I'll look bad. I'm going to lose it any minute now. These are all the anxiety statements that can drive us. Anxiety, and here's the definition of what anxiety is. Anxiety is what it feels like to mistrust God. I am very convinced that the root sin in humanity is not pride or it's mistrust. It's the root problem in all of humanity. Here's what I think about uh, about our society. I think our society wants to be loving. I don't hear people say they want to be unloving. But here's what I think our society, our Western society is like. I think everybody wants to have a maximum experience of love with a minimum experience of trust and being trustworthy. Everybody wants love. Very few want to work through their trust issues of being trustworthy or about trusting others. Very few. I do quite a bit of counseling. And usually at the, at the, when, we, when we listen long enough and get to what the core issues are, the core issues are almost always trust issues. How can I keep my heart soft in an abusive relationship? How can I, how can I trust God when um, these tragedies happen in my life? How, like, they're trust issues. And I really think, I think that we, we do have a little bit of, of, it needs to be about love. But love can only thrive where trust exists. Can I just go off script, if you don't mind, just for a minute? Because I think it's, health, it's helpful. Um, <clears throat> so... I think that marriage is the primary place to work through our trust issues. So in anxiety, there's um, anxiety always is going to look like two things. <clears throat> it's going to look like being um, controlling. critical 
and then it's going to look like being closed. Closed, withdrawn. Uh, people often put the word demanding or distant. But anxiety is either sending us to control relationships or opt out of relationships. That's what anxiety is always doing. And our goal is always to try to stay in relationship without being controlling. Super hard to do. It's a miracle. That's why we're Christians. Now, here's what's interesting. Um, uh, some of you might have heard of the Gottmans. Um, they're, parent, they're marriage gurus. They live in Seattle. I've been to one of their conferences in Seattle, but I've, I've read a number of their books. They're a Jewish couple, and uh, he, does, he does research and, um, and a bit of counseling, and she's more of the, uh, of the counselor. But what they, um, oh, they, they, they did this one research. It's been going on for 30 years. And get this, they can predict with a 97% accuracy rate who's going to get a divorce within the first two weeks of marriage. They did this uh, room, they call it the Love Lab. And they have, a, they have an apartment that has cameras everywhere except the bedroom. And they have uh, people signing up to, to, they watch newlyweds in their first two weeks of marriage and they came up with four criteria as to what's going to lead to divorce. And uh, it's, it's fascinating. One of the things that they say is that um, in marriages, it's around 92% of women are on the critical side and about 92% of men are on the closed and withdrawn side of relationships. So it's not 100%, um, but typically this is how it works. So let me just try to draw this. Um, so when we feel, when we feel insecure, unloved, this is all on, we, uh, we become critical. What is a critical person really doing is they're asking to be loved. It just doesn't come out very nicely because they're anxious. <clears throat> the way the person hears this, hears criticism, is they feel insignificant and uh, disrespect, uh, disrespected. So then they go, well, obviously the ways that I've tried to love you aren't very meaningful to you, so why even bother trying? So then they become withdrawn. Emotionally withdrawn from giving love, which causes this person to feel more insecure and unloved, which makes them more critical, which makes this person feel even less respected, which is more withdrawn. And this is the marriage cycle that we find most marriages get caught in. So, uh, uh, you know, this is called the crazy cycle. <clears throat> now, how do you get out of this cycle? And this is where it gets relevant to what we're talking about today. This person wants to, this is about, remember we said this is about receiving? And this is about giving, okay? So how do we receive well so we become more secure? 
we work through our trust issues. We let our, how do we open up our hearts to be loved? How do we become uh, respected and good lovers? We become trustworthy. So when we look at single parent homes, typically a single parent home is, is the mom, not the dad. I remember when we adopted our, uh, our son, Toby, he, uh, he was the product of a one night stand. And uh, <clears throat> um, so I remember Toby was born and the birth father came over and he says, you know what? He says, I can, I can see that you guys are gonna be good parents. And so I'm just gonna let you be the parents of Toby and I'm just gonna bow out. And there was a, there was a, a pride on his face that he's making a, a noble decision. And I said out loud, I said, well, you know, thank you or good or whatever. But inside, I'm thinking, you jerk. Your son will want to know you. And I will never be a replacement for you. I'm going to try, but I'll never be a replacement to you. And you think you're noble being absent from his life? Shame on you. It was so upsetting for me. He's typical male untrustworthy. How do you become trustworthy? You love people when they don't deserve it. That's how you become trustworthy. You stay true to love regardless of how someone else receives it. How do you become trusting? This is harder. Because you open your heart even when this person can feel a little bit dangerous. And you're really not trusting them. You're trusting Jesus to keep you safe, even when it doesn't feel ideal. And I'm going to quickly say that when somebody proves themselves to be selfish and abusive, then you don't trust them. So we're going to say that quickly, all right? You don't trust untrustworthy people. But what's happened in our society is the standard of being trustworthy has become almost impossible. <clears throat> There's a very disturbing verse about this in uh, First Peter. We'll take a break in a minute. Sorry, just let me find it real fast here. Nah, I can't find it. There we are. Okay, First uh, Peter 3. Um, in the same way, you wives, be submissive to your own husbands. That's hard already. Even, listen to this, if any of them are disobedient... So it's talking about submission to somebody who's disobedient to the word, that they may be won over without a word by the behavior of their wives as they observe your chaste and respectful behavior. 
here's what's true about my wife is her gift of trust. So this is, the big, this is the big question. Is trust earned or is it a gift? And the answer is yes. It's, it's earned and it's a gift. Her gift of trust changes my heart that I can better engage. And even if she doesn't, I'm still responsible to give her because I want to be trustworthy even if she doesn't receive it well. So in a sense, what needs to happen is I have to become responsible for my issue and she has to become responsible for hers even when the other person isn't responding the way that we would hope. And as I work through being untrustworthy, which is usually about being withdrawn and absent, I work through my anxiety by learning how to trust Jesus, that I can stay engaged even when it feels unsafe, that I'm going to be criticized. As Debbie can stay close to me, even when I don't, I'm not very observant or thoughtful the way that she would like me to be. We can have a new pattern of relating that's about receiving and giving love through our trust in Jesus Christ. And we therefore have worked through our anxiety issues. And the children become a benefit, a beneficiary of us working through our anxiety and mistrust in the context of our marriage. Any thoughts or comments on that? I know that's really hard because we all have a history of being hurt. Here's what I'm, I'm, I'm grappling with. I think it's impossible to overcome our anxiety without working through our trust issues. And trust is the most vulnerable of human experiences. I'm mostly angry with men because I feel like they have taken advantage of trust and been uh, selfish and abusive, so I'm mostly angry there. <clears throat> but I don't know how to change things. I remember, I'll just share one very short story. Uh, in my old church, I, I've been part of Every Nation now for 22 years. I was in an independent charismatic church before this. And in that church, we called all of the pastors by their first name. So I was just Greg, and the joke was, I don't call you Plumber Bob, you don't call me Pastor Greg. Like we're all just, right? Like we're all just Christians trying to follow Jesus. So I'm no better than anybody else. I loved believing that. I actually still believe it. But the thing in every nation, or at least in the, where, when we got involved, everybody was pastor everybody. And I didn't like it at all. I didn't like it. I thought it created a separation and I just, I just didn't like it, especially if you're on the West Coast. It's just not great. But because I was trying to be obedient in every nation, I let people start to call me Pastor Greg. And I remember what happened in my heart. I remember them. They would say, Pastor Greg, can you? And I remember thinking, oh, dear God, they're trusting me to be the pastor in their life. And it made me rise up 
to want to be worthy of that title. It did something in my heart. Where in my old church, it was, you're not my pastor. You're just one of many voices. I don't trust you. And it killed me. And then I got around a group of people who wanted me to succeed. And their trust helped me. Now here's, I have to qualify it very quickly. Do you know what it looked like? It looked like, Greg, we want to trust you, and this is how you mess it up, just to be clear. It's not like blind trust where, yes, pastor. No, I get lots of feedback. But it's feedback to make me more trustworthy, not to withhold trust. And it's an entirely different experience. So it's cute to talk about anxiety. It's really challenging when we see that these are the real issues that are going on, and this is what we need to work through together. Questions or comments before we take a break? We're going to do tips and tricks after the break, so this is the time to ask uh, more uh, theoretical or philosophical questions. Yeah. Yeah, it always has to do with the level of intimacy. So, um, um, your child is not going to have any other parents except you. There's a there's a, a unique uh, depth, and um, I'm I'm losing the word, but it's only you. It's, not, it's there's nothing generic about it. You're the only parent, and so that's unique in a discipleship relationship. It's different. And it's less vulnerable, less exclusive. That's what I'm looking for, less exclusive. Um, so it's actually less impactful. But I have to work through my kids' trust relationship with me all the time. And I, that one of the primary things that I have to do to be trustworthy is to set up moments for my kids to give me feedback. When they're older, they'll volunteer it. Or that's a good sign, but they'll eventually just give up trying. And uh, I need to have the kind of relationship where they get to be critical because they're trying to figure out how to trust me. And when they get critical, I can't withdraw. I need to stay emotionally engaged and not pull a power play by demanding obedience or... I'm the parent, you just do what I say, or whatever the thing, or opt out, and go, well, fine then. You don't obviously want my input, I'll just go mountain bike, or whatever. I have to stay engaged, I have to be present and peaceful, not controlling or withdrawn. Yeah, yeah. It's so. Uh, it's so. How are we doing? 
but I go more, they'll, they'll always say fine. They always say fine. So I'll say, if you were to say one thing that you don't like that I do, what would it be? Like I'm really setting it up. Like what would be one thing that frustrates you? And then I, <laughs> I just uh, ask for God to give me peace and to not be defensive when they say it. Yeah, so, uh, so what's very trendy in society is um, for this person to be a victim and just to demand that you do it better. So this is kind of the leadership side. And you, the reason why I don't trust you is because you're a messed up leader. What's also true is that you're a bit of a messed up follower. And uh, that's a harder conversation in this society. 50 years ago, it was totally flipped, where the follower was criticized, but not the leader. And so I'm glad it flipped. I think leaders should take responsibility for being godly. But it's dramatically flipped in our society. And so I need to have conversations with my kids about how they close their heart in pride and defensiveness. And I'm trying to love me, I'm trying to love you and you're not letting me. And I know I'm going to do it poorly, but I am trying. But you keep closing off your heart and doing fine. And so I'm worried about you. And I'm asking to be loved by you. And, uh, <clears throat> you know, I still, with my adult children, I still have to, I still say things to them. I'm careful about how much I say, very careful. But I go, when you do this, this is how it damages our relationship. This is how I see other people responding. When you do that, I don't think it's helpful. And is there anything you see in me? But do you see what we're working on all the time? It's not, you need to do better in school. Those aren't our conversations. They're very relational conversations. We're working on our relationships together. Uh, it's a, for me, as I look at parenting, it's a much different conversation than what I hear lots of parents, you know, behave better, perform better. I'll try to behave and perform better. No, we're, we're working on love and faith, trust, not performance. Yeah, me too. <laughs> Show me the money, right? <laughs> yeah, so you can tell when someone just loved you superficially, acted, they did the right thing, but you could tell their heart wasn't in it. To those who love you genuinely, I do this thing, I don't know if you guys have 
seen transformations with some discipleship material that we've used. And there's a picture that my son drew. It's just really, I mean, he's a little kid, so he draws stick figures, you know, or whatever. And to me, it's, it's a beautiful picture because it was drawn with the right heart. I'd much rather have somebody draw me stick figures with a good heart than a Picasso with a bad heart. And so, yeah, acts of love. But you can tell when somebody's performing just to, they're giving to get or whether they're truly giving. And I'll tell my kids that. Uh, I have one of my kids who will always give me compliments before he asks for something. And so I've told him, I says, you know what? I feel manipulated by you. You're only nice to me when you want something from me. And I find that really hard. I find it hurtful. I would like to know when you're nice to me when you don't want something in a minute. We've had those conversations often. Those are hard conversations to have. I'd rather just tell him to fix his behavior than to be emotional and say, I need you to love me genuinely. And it's hurtful when you don't. This is how we, this is how we, we talk about obedience. Like when we ask our kids to take out the garbage and they roll their eyes, I'll say, I'm asking you to love me. They go, ah, I hate it when he pulled the love thing. <laughs> how am I going to argue with that? But that's how we're framing obedience. Because that's how the Bible frames obedience, John 14, 21. If you love me, you'll obey my commands. So we're, we're, it's all going through that relational grid, but there's expectations in it. Any other comments before we're done? Take a break. I don't know. Are we communicating? Is this making sense to you? Isn't it sobering that trust is the problem? I hate that. I'd rather have almost any other problem than that one. I find it the most vulnerable of all problems. And here's, here's I'll just say this and then we'll, we'll take a break. You know what it says? The righteous will live by faith and um, like the whole gospel is about faith. Faith was kind of a religious word for me until I understood that it's about trust. And then the light bulb went off. If always it was about love, the reason why God keeps asking for faith is because trust is the foundation of a love relationship. And I can't give or receive love with God unless I trust him. And then the light bulb went off. This is, this is always what's going on in all relationships. That, I, you know, I tell my foster kids, your, your closed heart is fulfilling your greatest fears. You don't receive love from me because you're committed to not having an open heart. I'm trying to love you. As imperfectly as I am, I'm trying to love me, love you, but you won't let me in. And so you can blame me for not doing it perfectly, and I really will try to do it better, but you also don't let me in. And I don't know what it's going to take for you to drop your guard. I get that your past was screwed up. I know about it, and it kills me inside. But this is a new moment. Will you trust Jesus in this moment to keep your heart safe? by trying to love or receive love from an imperfect parent. Those are our conversations. I'd much rather just punish them for not cleaning up their room. It's a simpler conversation. All right. 
So let's look at the process, and I am pronouncing it correctly. Let's look at the process of parenting. How do we lead our children toward healthy relationships? So focus on rule keeping produces religion or rebellion. Just to stay with this diagram, um, this is usually, over here is usually religion. You guys have been in transformations. This is, this is religion. It's doing it all right with an emphasis on security, getting it, getting it tight and safe. Over here is usually the rebel off doing their own thing, disengaged. So usually if, if parents focus on rule keeping, it produces religion and rebellion. Um, where we're trying to pursue feeling safe through somebody keeping the rules, or we're just giving up trying it all, <clears throat> just opting out. A focus on heart change produces better behavior even when we're not there or when our kids face a new situation. Um, I can tell you lots of bad stories about our family, but if you don't, I don't want it to be set up that we have done everything right or something because we haven't, but sometimes it's just nice to hear encouraging stories. So uh, Tyler, who's now just going into be a campus missionary, uh, we asked him, are the foster kids just came so that he would have been around 11 years old. The foster kids just came into our, our, uh, into our home and we, they were gonna, the government wanted them to go to a camp but we were worried if they just go on alone because camps can be very, especially non-Christian camps, are ruthless places where they learn all kinds of things you don't want them to learn. <laughs> um, and so we asked Tyler to go along with them. So we asked we asked Tyler to go. He comes back. We just go, Tyler, how'd it go? He goes, Dad, I learned more about sex in this last week than I did. I said, I'm so sorry. He says, and they were foul, you know. I go, well, what'd you do? He says, well, he says, you know, he remembered some conversations that we had. He says, I knew that what I needed to do was find out who the leaders, who the bad leaders were. And then what I did is whenever they were walking to dinner or something, I just come alongside them and befriend them. And he says, there were three main guys who were kind of the ringleaders, so I became their friends. He says, Dad, I was able to lead them to Christ before the end of the week. It's pretty funny. <clears throat> but you want them to be able to have the gospel internalized in their hearts, not just um, cosmetic Christianity, where it's just about following rules. So this is what it means to correct our children. So if I'm, you guys have toddlers, you'll get a bit of, if I'm walking in this line and I go like this, what does it mean to correct me? It means to put me back. I'm not, you're not just slapping me for going off. A correction means you're trying to get me walking back where I need to be walking toward love and relationship. So when we say that we correct our children or discipline our children, we're moving them back online. We're not just telling them to stop it because they were bad. That's not a correction. It's, uh, it's just punishment. We're trying to get them back um, loving God and loving others. And so there's three level, there's, sorry, four levels of correction where we build relationship, we correct misbehavior, we reduce resistance, and then we discipline defiance. So let's, let's look at each one of these. We build relationship. We build, our relation, we build our relationship with our children by enjoying them, engaging in meaningful conversation, and practically helping them. We enjoy them. Um, 
Debbie is just amazing at this. Um, but we try to laugh a lot with our kids. We just try to just, we just try to enjoy them. And, uh, and when we're enjoying them, we are not parenting them in the sense of we're just leaving discipline behind for a minute, unless it really gets out of hand. But we just, we're just trying to enjoy them. Um, we engage in meaningful conversation. This is probably the thing I enjoy most in parenting because it's just how I'm built. But I love having meaningful conversations with my kids and uh, uh, and learning how to listen. Just a heads up, if you want to have a meaningful conversation with your kids, don't give advice unless they ask for it. If they ask for it, go for it. But the, the fastest way to shut down conversation with kids and teenagers is starting to tell them what to do. They just will tune you out in a minute. Um, so I have to bite my tongue, ask more questions. What do you think you should do? But I will not say what I think they should do until they ask me. And then practically helping them. Um, helping them with their homework. Uh, my daughter Jessica just finds school really, really hard. She's diagnosed with the ADHD thing and she just really finds it hard to concentrate. She thinks she's not smart. I think she's brilliant, but she doesn't think she's smart. And uh, when I would do homework with her, I would just go, okay, what's the next question? And I would say, I don't get it. And she'd go, dad, it's obvious. <laughs> and then she'd tell it to me. Oh, okay. I'm helping her. How am I helping her? I'm helping her believe that she can understand instead of just giving all the answers here. Let me tell you what's right. And I would just try to make homework a fun experience for her. So this is what you really need to hear. Stage one deals with 90, I'll, I'll make up a number, 95% of the problems is building relationship. The other three fill out the last five to 10%. If we're doing one, um, so good listening is at the heart of parenting. Spouting off before listening to the facts is both shameful and foolish. The first to speak in court sounds right until the cross-examination begins. So um, I don't know how many times I watched something happen and assumed I knew what was going on. So I walk into a room just as somebody swinging at another kid, you know? And it's just obvious, don't swing at the other kid. But what I failed to see is what happened two seconds before that, you know? And so I've really had to discipline myself, even in what looks obvious, is to say, okay, what happened? And just listen to what's going on. Ask curious questions, personal questions, and faith questions. Listen long enough to understand and respect their why. Um. I've also had to grow comfortable with saying to my kids, I don't know. I don't know what to do. But uh, we ask, I'm curious. Is, uh, is this is an opening statement. Oh, here's a great, I just learned this last week from my daughter-in-law. I have a daughter-in-law now. And uh, she says, I learned this thing that 
the way that you ask, you get people to keep talking is listen to the last three words they say and form a question out of the last three words they say. I thought that was so great. I'd never heard that before. So uh, I'm going to be going to the park. Oh, you're going to the park. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, we're going to be having some, some, uh, some food and hanging out with friends. Oh, what kind of food are you going to have? Do you like that? Who, friends, tell me about so-and-so. Like you just, if you just build off the last three, you know, I thought that was very clever. So most parenting is helping our children process conflict, emotional or relational, in faith and love instead of anxiety, which is usually black and white thinking. For kids, they think very black and white. Uh, what I especially did with Jessica, because she's not a cognitive learner, she's an experiential learner, we did lots of role playing. And she would pretend to be the bully or I would pretend to be the bully. And then we'd work through how to, you know. But um, uh, most of our conversations was about processing conflict with their friends or with their siblings. And then we follow up, see how it's going afterwards. And now we get to correcting misbehavior. Okay, so I have said these three questions a thousand times. All right? I've said these a thousand. This is my go-to parenting intervention. All right? Uh, so they're, they're, doing, they're misbehaving. So we're, correct, we're on point two, correcting misbehavior. And here's what I've said a thousand times. What are you doing? What should you be doing? Will you do that now? I have said that a thousand times. So I'm walking into the room, they're fighting. I go, what are you guys doing? Well, so-and-so didn't, like, and then they'll explain in a totally biased way what's going on in the moment. Uh, so what are you doing? And then they say that. What should you be doing? Sharing. Great, would you do that now? And I get a verbal yes. I go, you guys are amazing. So what are you doing? What should you be doing? Will you do that now? It's a very therapeutic process of questions. So what are you doing? is they're confessing their sin. That's, what, that's what's going on. They're confessing their sins. What should you be doing is a statement of truth. Will you do that now is a statement of faith. And truth, uh, repentance, and faith are the key ingredients for change. So those aren't light questions for me. They're very, they've been thoughtfully chosen. What are you doing? What should you be doing? Will you do that now? and then you congratulate them. What are you doing, or is that loving? This produces honesty and reflection. What should you do? This is repentance. Let them choose a more loving response. Will you do that now? Takes faith. And so in that moment, you don't lecture. You just, they said what they're gonna be doing, because they know in their hearts. So you don't have to add to it, you just congratulate them. Use few words during moments of discipline. Talk before and after. So that's correcting misbehavior. Number three now is reducing resistance. So correcting a misbehavior is just a moment. It's just a moment of difficulty. There's no themes in it. But resistance is different. So you, uh, you want to help them not be resistant. So prepare them for upcoming events. Ask kindly and clearly, but expect obedience. So, uh, so again, I've said this I don't know how many times. But um, I say, uh, we're going uh, to be going to church in 10 minutes. Uh, no, say, I'll say, I, uh, I want you to go to church. We're, oh, and I'm getting caught up in my own head. Um, 
I want you to be ready to go to church in 10 minutes. Say yes, Daddy. And at the end of every one of my requests is say yes, Daddy. And they go, yes, Daddy. I go, you're a rock star. But I get them to acknowledge every request. I don't just say, I want you to be ready in 10 minutes and walk away. I always have them acknowledge what I am asking them to do. Say yes, Daddy. And maybe that's a, a dumb trick or something. But for me, it worked very, it was very helpful to get a direct acknowledgement of the request that I was making. Another way to, uh, to reduce resistance is you give them a choice, but the choice is limited to two. So uh, no problem, here are your two choices. You can either do this or this is your consequence. So I don't have a problem, I'm not anxious. I'm not gonna be the one getting punished in a minute. <laughs> you are. So here's your choice, you can either do this or this would be the consequence, what would you like to do? It's no problem. I don't enter into a power play. I don't have to raise my voice. I don't have to scream at them. I don't criticize them for being such obedient, disobedient children, not like the, the ones down the street who are much more obedient than you are. I'm not shaming. I'm not doing any of those things. I'm just saying, no problem. This or this. Giving choices reduces your anxiety and empowers their responsibility. There's a saying, every problem must find its owner, and I'm not the problem. Consequences are natural. The removal of a blessing or isolation. So, uh, uh, you know, feel free to play with your friends after your room is clean. I've said that I don't know how many times. They go, can I go out to play? Absolutely. Just as soon as you clean your room, you're free to go play with your friends. Oh, and by the way, have me check uh, after you clean your room. Say, yes, daddy. Yes, daddy. And I check their room, it's great. I go, go have fun. Thank you so much for cleaning your room. Clearly communicate expectations and enforceable consequences. Consistency is key. All you need to simply say is yes or no. Anything beyond that comes from the evil one. I love that. So here's a bunch of examples of uh, reducing resistance and of giving choices. Uh, this is, there's a whole kind of philosophy of parenting that is all about choice-based parenting. <clears throat> and uh, here's some. Would you like to finish your supper now or wait until the next meal is served? Versus, I'm going to count to three. It's no problem. We're, the next meal is going to be in two hours. So you don't have to finish. It's, I'm full. <laughs> like, it's, you're the one who's going to be hungry. But as soon as you cave in after 15 minutes, what have you told them? I don't have to obey. I get what I want. I just have to, like, we're teaching them disobedience. Um, I'm so sorry that you are so hungry. I get that way when I miss a meal, too. But you can have a big breakfast versus chastising. Stop whining. I warned you, and now you'll have to suffer. To replace anger with sadness is better. Feel free to play with your friends after you sweep the kitchen versus negotiating. Okay, do half the kitchen now and the rest when you get back. They'll never do it when they get back. I, my kids happened anyways. Would you rather clean your room or hire me to do it? Versus punishment. If you don't clean your room, there's no more electronics for the night. 
it's, uh, we, I talked about giving allowances. What we will take back allowances for is they have money. You know, they have, boy, I think uh, Jamil has like $2,500 in the bank. It's amazing. Um, and so um, we say either you can clean your room or I'm $12 an hour. What would you like? I could use the money, so I prefer you don't clean your room. I'll make a joke, you know. <clears throat> no, 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 I'll clean the room. But, it's, but you see, it's non-anxious parenting. It's just giving them two choices, which is usually a good thing or a consequence. Um, do you guys want to settle, settle the problem yourselves or draw straws to see who sits by the window versus I'm going to decide? You're welcome to buy that toy. Just remember, you won't have any money left over to replace your ripped jeans or shirt versus unenforceable threats. If you waste your money, I'll make you go to school without a shirt. You know, silly talk. I'm going to start my alone time. Do you want to go to bed with a story now or no story in 15 minutes? You limit your choices to what is reasonable for you to do. So we don't have our kids. We have an exception to this. I'll tell you what it is in a minute. But we didn't have our kids stay up until they just fell asleep. We had a, a set bedtime. Because it would be loving, they're loving us if they go to bed and we have some time alone. I don't want to be parenting until all hours of the night. And so we tell them when to go to bed. And so I'm gonna, my alone time starts at 9 o'clock. If you want me to read a story before that, I'd be happy to do that. And, but that'll have to be 8.45. What, do you, what would you like? You know? If you don't want to study for the math test, that's fine. I hope you'll enjoy summer school. <laughs> I love that. Uh, what do you think will happen to your friendship if you keep bossing her around versus just telling them to stop being bossy? You're getting to think. Regarding friends, I sure do care about your friends who are struggling. I'm sure glad they have you to help them. This goes to, uh, Lily, you were talking about um, about schooling. Should we have our three main options are public school, private, maybe Christian school, or homeschooled. And so um, we've typically been biased toward public school uh, for this reason, that we want our children to go through difficult times while we still have influence in their life. So we don't want them to be sheltered and then go out into the world at 17 or 18 years old, encountering new moments, and then we aren't there to be able to uh, disciple them or help them. So we prefer them to have bad moments while they're still under our roof, which is called public school, <laughs> as far as I can tell. <laughs> um, but here's the, but we've also had, uh, many of our children have gone to Christian school because we thought it was unreasonable to, uh, to put them in, to expose them to that much darkness, especially our foster kids. We just didn't think that they could handle that much darkness without buying in. So here's my criteria for which, which to do, and it's anxiety. I've made an observation that there are some parents who homeschool their kids out of anxiety, and you can tell. There's other kids who have homeschooled their parents without anxiety, and it's gone great. But you can tell the difference, and you can tell the difference in the kids. The kids are fearful. 
because their parents were afraid. Taking your kids to Christian school is great if it's done out of love and concern, not out of anxiety. Um, when my kids were in public school and they were taught sex education in grade one, um, well, we took them out of it sometimes, but we just talked that through. It was just so great that they got exposed and what happened on the playground and you know, somebody said this to me. Uh, all of those are moments that I get to work through with them while they're still young and want my input. So um, if I'm afraid of public school, they, here's what you need to know, I think. Uh, I think, first of all, it's really great that they understand the creation account instead of a Big Bang, which could also be Christian, but doesn't have any, is not explained that way. Um, my kids, the influence that their peers and teachers had on them was not as significant as my impact on them. And so they would come home and go, Dad, you know, we were taught this about biology or, you know, a cosmology. And they go, but it's not right, is it? And I go, well, it's a little bit right. And then we'd talk it through. But they knew it wasn't like, oh, we learned at school this and therefore you're wrong. If I have a healthy relationship with my kids, that just doesn't happen. So I think that's an anxiety that's mostly unjustified. So it always comes back to what is my heart in the decision that I'm making versus the decision itself. And so one of our kids, Tyler, he went through public school to grade 11 and then, in, uh, no, to grade 10. And he says, Dad, would, would it be okay if I went to Christian school for two years because I would like to experience the difference? Great. <clears throat> like it was, and he says, wow. So he, because he says, I want to see what it's like. And then he finishes two years in Christian school and he says, I think it was easier <clears throat> to be a Christian in public school than it was in Christian school because everybody was faking it in Christian school and I could tell, and it was hard on my soul. Like, that's how he interpreted it. So there's no right or wrong. It's just doing a faith-filled uh, decision and then pastoring them through whatever, because there's always a downside to every decision, and it's just pastoring them through that. We can talk about more about that if you'd like. You don't have to... Uh, you have a choice. Eat your vegetables nicely in your chair or play with your food on the floor. So if you can't change the behavior, change the location. It seems as though you're upset with each other. Would you rather continue that while walking on the sidewalk or talking kindly and staying in the car? This was uh, my... So I have a hero in, uh, a, a, and she's a single mom and she uh, has had 300 foster children and the last four she's had for uh, many years. I think she's an outstanding mom. And, but she has no shame. She's just, I'll just tell you. So if the kids, if her kids are arguing in the back seat, she says, if you guys want to argue, it's fine. I just don't like listening to it. So hop out and you guys can argue and I'll just drive along beside you until you're ready to. 
systems that they hop out and they go, okay, we finished arguing. <laughs> Can we come in again? They go, sure. Come on in. Love it. It's much warmer. It's not raining in here. <laughs> but she'll, you know, it's just non-anxious. So she'll, uh, or she had one of her kids who just wore his pants down to, you know, like way down there, you know. And she just thought that was not, I don't think it's great either. So she says, you know, she's just very creative. And so she's a, she's a very large lady. Um, you know, she's a very big person. If it's just, I just want you to picture. So she says, if they can pull down their pants, so can I. So she goes to the mall, and she, she says, I worked it through ahead of time, but she says, I, I had my pants down to here. And she says, and you know how they walk, you know? And she says, I'm walking through the mall, and they didn't notice for like 10 minutes. And this is hard on her, you know, because I'm walking with my pants down. And then, and then they finally notice, and they go, Mom, your pants are down. I go, I know, isn't it cool? Look, your pants are down, and my pants are down. And she says, I'm, you know, I'm one of you. You know, she says, and they says, I'll do anything for you to pull up your pants. <laughs> and then she says, well, if you pull up your pants, I'll pull up my pants. <laughs> and that's how, they're just very creative, you know. And they, she says they, they never had their pants down after that moment. That, but very creative, eh? Just not anxious. Just, uh, I'll tell you one more story about her if we have time. She's an amazing parent. <clears throat> um... I know that you lied about who that baseball glove belonged to. How are you going to make that right? Just very, you're working it through as opposed to you stole and you should give it back and pay $5 more or something. Like you, you work it through with them. Giving edicts is almost always anxious. But we'll get to when it's not anxious. We're going to discipline defiance in just a minute. Uh, the kids are really looking forward to visiting you. This is speaking to grandparents now. Will you agree to our style of parenting or should we keep them with us this weekend? Because grandparents can often undermine. We have our, our best friends of, I've known them now for 40 years. They adopted a uh, severely autistic child from Liberia. And uh, whenever, and it requires very, very clear boundaries. Everything is very, very regimented. And the grandparents thought that was very uh, cruel and uncreative. And so they would, the, the boy would go off with the grandparents and then come back super misbehaved. And they would have to spend two or three months retraining him. And so they had to eventually say, we would love you to have a relationship with your grandson, but this is how we parent. Would you like to do it according to our way or should we, or should we keep our keep him with us. And so then they finally agreed, and then it just went really, really well. <clears throat> but it's not anxious. It's, I can't make decisions for you, but I am going to make my decisions. And these are your two choices. It, also, when we, do, uh, when we do sandwiches, we make our kids sandwiches, they go, what would you like, peanut butter and jelly? Or cheese and salami? Which would you like? We don't give... What, what kind of sandwich do you want? We give two choices. It's always two. If you start giving three or four, they'll, they'll be all over that. In each instance, stay positive, present, peaceful, and above all, don't rescue, or they learn irresponsibility. When there is injustice, compromise, or inconsistency in the home, a child becomes disheartened in their commitment to be righteous. 
That's a good sentence. And finally, we discipline defiance. So um, you build relationship, you correct misbehavior. What are you doing? What should you do? Will you do that now? Or you, um, or you give the two choices. I, I lost my, yeah. Where you reduce resistance saying, because you're, you're empowering choice, but there's only ever two choices. And then finally, if all that doesn't work, then you dif discipline defiance. And disciplining defiance means it looks like I need to choose for you. And so this goes back to the questions that we talked about in the previous session. What do you do with an abusive husband or you know, injustice in the, in, in the workplace? Or there, is, there comes a point when somebody, we need to make choices on their behalf because they're not capable of making good choices. It looks like I need to choose for you. And it's always a last resort and very rare. There's a, a parent that I really, really admire. He was our guide in Israel. I've, I've now uh, been with him for a month and then 10 days and 10 days, and I've watched him parent his kids. And he says, I asked him, I says, do you believe in spanking? He goes, absolutely, the Bible teaches it. He says, but I can't remember the last time I had to. I don't think I ever did, actually. Interesting, hey? Because if you do one to three, you hardly ever have to do four. And so if you're always doing four, it probably means you're not doing one to three. That's what it means. Four should almost never have to happen. We would spank our kids because I'm old, and that's just what you did with kids. But in, with foster kids, you're not allowed to touch them. So we really had to relearn all of that. It was really good for our hearts. We were using spanking. It was way too easy to just do that instead of actually parenting their hearts. I regret that. Not that we beat our kids a lot, but I, I think that, uh, yeah, <laughs> just rarely, <laughs> no. But um, I would say we almost would have never had to if, uh, if I would have thought a little longer. So um, <clears throat> forgiveness, positivity, discussion, and security are all critical, but unless we expect our children to obey us, they will not leave behind pride and self-centeredness. Could you please hear that? In homes, there should be a wall that they, that they bump up against called our authority. So I believe in discussion. I believe in cooperation and negotiation. I believe in all that. There are some things that are just wrong. And unless we say no to our children, I think they stay proud and independent. There are some things that will not be tolerated in our home. Obedience is rooted in trust, and trust is the foundation of a love relationship. We've said that already. Children, obey your parents, for this is right. Obeying us is critical to our children's obedience to and trust in Christ. So there's a process of discipline. You explain what you're going to do, discipline, restore them, and then empower them to be better. Uh, take a look at this as a form of discipline. You can see there in that picture. Uh, they're going 99 in a 55-kilometer zone. That's the joke, anyways. Don't do that. Uh, so listen to this. All, all punishment is abusive if it is ill-motivated. Frustration, teaching them a lesson, fixing behavior, proving a point, or making them pay. So uh, what everybody does now is uh, isolation, timeouts. Timeouts are super cruel if they're done with a bad heart. Like every discipline is bad if it's done with a bad heart. I had this, just, just the other day, I was with a, a, 
it was a, it was a I'm, I'll disguise it, but it was a gathering. And there was a, there was a parent who, whenever the child would come and talk to them, he wanted them to say, to say, excuse me, daddy, every time. That was a little excessive. And then they didn't do it, I think, twice. And he says, I've told you that you had to say, excuse me, before addressing me. Now you need a, he was a four-year-old. He says, now you need to have a 20-minute timeout. That's excessive. That's not good. That was very worrisome. I'm going to have to talk to the parent. They say that a timeout should be the length of their age. So a one-year-old has a one-minute timeout, a two-year-old has a two-minute timeout. Sorry, yeah, a three-year-old has a three-minute timeout. That's more appropriate. Then a 20-minute timeout for a four-year-old is you're setting them up to disobey. There's no way they can stay isolated for that long. It's not, it's not right. Fathers, do not exasperate. The word exasperate means frustrate your children. In the J.B. Phillips translation, I like it. It says, Father, Fathers, do not overcorrect your children or make it difficult for them to obey. So whatever the discipline is, you listen to them first, you explain what you're going to do, you do it, and then you restore them back to relationship and you empower them to do it better next time. In conclusion, where does parenting begin? It begins with receiving our own adoption as sons and daughters of our Heavenly Father. Because there's no better parent. The spirit you receive does not make you slaves so that you live in fear, anxiety again. Rather, the spirit you receive brought about your adoption to sonship, and by him we cry, Abba, Father. If the written word of the Bible could be changed into a single word and become one single voice, this voice more powerful than the roaring of the sea would cry out, the Father loves you. And I find that most of my poor parenting is because of my own mistrust with God and my own dysfunction in my relationship with him. I'm a very suspicious person. And uh, I've had to work through my suspicion of God because it leaks out in my relationship with my wife and children. Parenting is an expression of identity rather than a portfolio of skills. And so Jesus made a way for us to enter into his relationship with the Father. And from that relationship, we can parent our own children. So in conclusion, the world is orphaned. Our children access many videos, blogs, and tweets, but their father and mother are irreplaceable in their relational development. So I really think for sure this generation is a fatherless generation. And in many ways, if you factor in anxiety, it's even a motherless generation. And so God bless you for being here and for being willing to look at your own hearts as you uh, understand how to love your children better.